This B-Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. Loved and trusted by more than 1 million teachers, IXL enhances your teaching and takes work off your plate so you can make an even bigger impact on your students. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and helps you assess student performance through actionable, real-time insights. Strengthen daily instruction, close knowledge gaps quickly, and set every student up for success. Want to bring IXL to your school? Learn more at IXL.com B-E. That's IXL.com B-E. We are proud to partner with MyFlex Learning. MyFlex Learning is a scheduling platform that helps middle and high schools meet the individual needs of all students. Students can easily create and manage time for flex blocks, wind time, activity periods, RTI, counselor and teacher appointments, and so much more. Even my favorite, Synergy Time. And with its built-in accountability tool and reporting features, my flex learning solves your challenges around getting kids where they need to be and understanding how flex time is spent. Make flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com slash B-E. Greetings, everyone. I'm Frederick Lane, an author, attorney, and educational consultant based in Brooklyn, New York. I'm the author of 10 books, including most recently, Cyber Traps for Educators 2.0, Raising Cyberethical Kids, and Cyber Traps for Expecting Moms and Dads. Jethro uh, Jones and I have teamed up to bring timely, entertaining, and useful information to teachers, parents, and others about the risks arising from the use and misuse of digital devices. Jethro is away on another meeting, so I will be taking over his role today. Uh, He would normally say that over the coming weeks and months, we'll be talking to some of the world's leading experts from the fields of education, parenting, sociology, and cyber safety. We hope you'll join us as we look at what it takes to better navigate our increasingly high-tech world. For more information or to donate to our work, please visit centerforcyberethics.org. The Cybertraps podcast is a production of the Center for Cyberethics, a 501c3 independent nonpartisan educational institute dedicated to the study and promotion of cyberethics as a positive social force through research, curricula development, publishing and media, professional training, and public advocacy. And our topic for today is a wrap-up and review of the Professional Practices Institute conference that we previewed a couple of weeks ago. I am pleased to be joined by Quinton Dale, who was involved in helping to plan that conference. He's going to give us a rundown on some of the things that he took away from it, and we'll just have a general conversation about what folks were trying to do out there. So, Q, welcome to the show. Thank you, Fred. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, I'm really glad to have a chance to talk to you again. And for those listeners who may have missed the uh, first interview we did with you, why don't you give us a little bit of uh, professional background about the work you do, and then we'll dive in. Yes, I I am the Associate Commissioner of Investigations for the Massachusetts Department of Elementary and Secondary Education's Office of Professional Practice Investigations, referred to as OPPI for short. We are uh, responsible for conducting, uh, allega- investigating 
allegations of educator misconduct that have been referred to us by uh, school districts, uh, the media, law enforcement, and various other uh, sources. And we also are responsible for screening uh, applicants that may have had some issues attached to them to see if these people, if those in the if those individuals are suitable for licensure. Mm -hmm. And the last time that you came on and chatted with us, you gave us some great insight into the kinds of investigations that you do and the ways in which technology has really affected your job. That's certainly true and, and it uh, is continuing and, and thankful um, for your presentation at the PPI and your continual education of all of us who don't spend a lot of time in cyber world uh, for the excerpts that you provide to help guide us uh, to, you know, what's trending in the field, what to watch for, and, uh, and how to approach it. Well, it's very kind of you to say I actually spent the afternoon writing four presentation descriptions for the Alaska Society, uh, Alaska Society for Technology and Education, which is in February. So I get to fly to frozen Alaska for four oh, days. <laughs> oh. But anyway, let's back up and talk a little bit about PPI. And uh, for those of you who are not kind of in this again, it's Professional Practices Institute. So why don't you tell us a little bit about the organization and what they hope to achieve? So um, the PPI is... Uh... It's a, it's, 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 a, it's a branch of NASDAQ, uh, the National Association of State Directors of Teachers Education and Certification. I might have said that a little fast, but I think uh, your listeners may know what NASDAQ stands for. We've talked about NASDAQ so often on this show. Right. Um, we're, uh, this is a group, uh, cohort of people that uh, educate or prep folks, uh, folks from licensure departments that have uh, state departments of education across the country and investigators uh, from a state departments of education across uh, the country. So we come together annually to uh, swap stories, network, um, discuss things that uh, trending in, in the industry uh, and primarily, you know, just stay current and uh, Meet our colleagues. We we deal a lot uh, through the clearinghouse. We deal with each other a lot uh, through emails, and it's good to get together and put faces with names and and collaborate on some projects. Yeah, I I have had the pleasure now. I think of going to most of them over the past decade, and it's a terrific group of people. You know, really from all over the country, and like so many of these national conferences, you get such fascinating perspectives from the different states that come and attend. And, and that is the most fascinating thing, how we're facing the same issues in each of the respective states, but our approaches to them, our uh, regulations, and uh, how, how they govern, how we handle them differently. Um, but there's a, there certainly is a common commonality among all of the cases. And the approaches is uh, just the the legislation and regulations. Uh, some times make it how we resolve these issues, uh, handle these issues uh, differently. But it's 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 always refreshing to hear the unique perspectives and to share information. Uh, yeah, that may be yeah. useful. Well, I think you know from my perspective, Q, and and I know you and I have talked about this that with the um, technology, a lot of 
school districts are facing similar issues regardless of where they're located because you know kids in arizona are using snapchat just like kids in vermont or florida or what have you and you know the same for educators as well that's certainly certainly true and and that's what we we see a lot of that and uh we certainly uh that that is i couldn't have said it any better it, <laughs> it's you know they no matter where you are the technology is essentially the same you might not have an iphone 14 but you still have an iphone <laughs> so, do. so if i i don't know i think you were you weren't chair of the planning committee were you or were you just a, a member this year I, I don't recall no i'm currently serving as the chair for the uh, ppi uh, Fantastic. So you were you were leading the group, and I served on this for a couple of years. It's it's a blast. But you were leading the group that was soliciting presentation proposals and then putting together the you know collection of presentations that people heard. So what kinds of things were you seeing? What what helped shape the conference for you? Um, this what one thing we knew uh, we had heard going into the conference that, that we're going to have a lot of first timers uh, because it's been a lot of turnover in the workforce mm, uh, post pandemic. So yeah. that we needed to go back to some of the original stuff that was done, right? Some, some, some of the introductory, uh, some of the successful presentations, type of presentations that we had um, introduced previously. Mm -hmm. um, and then we wanted to move things forward uh, with, you know, legislative uh, initiatives that were taking place uh, in other states. Some states had were, were effective, uh, effective in changing uh, and defining some terms like more turpitude and grooming and try to <laughs> introduce how they were able to um, get, have those terms defined and, and, and work them into their regulations so that they can be, uh, enforcement actions can be taken based on uh, those, that definition. Um, and we also uh, continue, continued, wanted to continue our uh, trend of talking about restorative approaches to discipline. Um, you know, we just want to make sure that it's, the messaging is out there that, you know, not every offense is a death sentence in terms of in your career. There's, a, there's an opportunity for some rehabilitative efforts, um, steps that can be taken um, to redirect uh, the offending educators and, and have them go on and have successful careers. So, so we want to make sure that we're, we wanted to make sure that we're messaging that as well in, in talking about um, how states approach that. Um, you know, here in Massachusetts, you know, we're big on that. Uh, mm -hmm. And we have become sort of a lead state in that area. So we felt that we had a lot of information that we could impart with that might be useful uh, for other other. Uh, states in attendance, and, and that turned out to be true. Well, I think that's a really interesting angle. I'm curious to hear from uh, your perspective where the line gets drawn. And was this something that got kicked around at the conference? Like, the, clearly, there are going to be some offenses for educators that are beyond the pale, right? They just, <laughs> there's no coming back from it. That, that and, is true. And 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 yet, I, I really respect this idea that maybe you're going to show a little compassion or empathy for people or give them a chance to re-engage in a more productive way. So you must have gotten different perspectives on where states draw the line on that. Yeah, I mean, uh, some states wish they had the discretion 
to be able to do so. I think, you know, uh, <laughs> right. in some states, you know, things are um, by statute mandatory. Right. Uh, you know, their enforcement actions, there's no discretion there. Um, but maybe when they come to apply for reinstatement, some of these um, techniques and, and alternatives can be applied, right? And I think what I'm referring to is um, using different courses, uh, whether it be anger management, classroom management, substance abuse counseling, uh, something, uh, you know, along those mm -hmm. lines that right. uh, we think the person uh, needs to go and have some training and, and concentrated training, not the type of training you get at the school when you get hired. Uh, and then those PD professional development credits. This is a concentrated focus training uh, that the department has to pre-approve your attendance before you're going to receive any credit in terms of uh, the recommendation to the commissioner for reinstatement. So, you know, states are curious about that and, and, and how we assess uh, which uh, programs to allow them to participate in. We don't recommend any. They can go out and find whichever one they like that deals with this particular area issue and send it to us and we will go through it, research it, vet it, and determine if it uh, has the requirements that we're looking for them to receive mm -hmm. um, to continue in the, the education field. Well, that's, that's really, I think, a nice approach. And in terms of dealing with or, or collaborating with people from around the country, um, you know, I think it's great that you're able to take a model like Massachusetts and put it out there for people to take back to their home states and start kicking around. Is this something we can do? You know, do we need legislative action to change things? So on and so forth. Uh, let me ask you this, in terms of putting together this particular collection of presentations, was there anything that stood out for you personally that, that you were excited about? I know that you were busy throughout the conference, but if there's anything that really grabbed you, I'm curious to hear. Well, your presentations always grab me. Uh, oh, that's good. <laughs> uh, I, no, I'm, I'm not. I'm being serious because uh, it's cutting edge stuff and, and you're out in front of it or right in step with it where the first time we're introduced to it in a lot of situations is when it's part of a case that we're investigating. So mm -hmm. I'm always, always intrigued by your presentations and, and, and having followed up conversations with uh, my colleagues about it. Uh, from around the country and, and to the individual, we were all a little, uh, took a deep breath and said, we have some work to do because of what you, you were talking about. It just, just well, shows sure. us how much is there and how much to be aware of. So that, that was good. I was really interested in hearing um, about the uh, investigation of sexual misconduct under new state legislation and how they were able to achieve that. And I'm looking for the title, oh, how Nevada was able to define moral turpitude in their yeah. uh, regulations. Um, that I found that to be, you know, when talking to Mike Arakawa in advance of uh, the presentation and in the planning sessions, uh, I found that I was really intrigued by how he was able to do that uh, and have it become a part of 
their operating procedures. So that well, was let's, let's expand on that a little bit, just so people will really understand. So if I understand correctly, and I only saw a few minutes of that presentation myself, but Nevada in its statute or in its teacher licensing regulations, or maybe both, uh, uses the term moral turpitude, right? So do you know do you know which it is? Is it a statutory term or is it a regulatory? I think it's uh, statutory, but I don't yeah, I quote think, me on that. I think no, it's, no, but no. I do recall it that he said it was statutory. And so the challenge for them is trying to figure out what the guiding rules are for applying that to teacher cases, right? That is true, but they had to work hard to convince, <laughs> I believe, the legislators to allow it to happen by having a clear uh you know what's the word i'm looking for a broad understanding of it the applications of it the challenges to it mm -hmm. uh and the weaknesses and the strengths of it and uh he was able to successfully get it done i'm looking forward uh to going back and watching the presentation to learn a little bit more because as you mentioned a, a moments ago bouncing from session to session i, I missed some of the sensitive <laughs> information well, that's being shared Right. And as our listeners will get a chance to hear, Jethro and I took a lot of the session time to actually do interviews with people who were at PPI. Um, so I was behind a microphone for many of these particular sessions myself. I think the one that I was really sorry that I didn't get to go see, um, because I think it's something every school should be aware of, is the idea of developing an ethics team within a school district. Yes, uh, the, the, you know, certainly the, the model code of ethics for educators is a great document. It has a lot of useful, if, if, a, if a district or state doesn't adopt the model code of MCEE, the model code of ethics for educators, mm -hmm. uh, there's a lot to take away from it to um, put, weave into your ed prep programs, to weave into educator prep programs, because uh, certainly, uh, Fred, what we hear in some of these cases is if I had known, if somebody had provided me that type of information, the line, the lines would have been a little clearer, clear, more clearly defined, and I wouldn't find myself in the situation that I am. We'll send them out for some ethics training, and they will come back and say, this was the most useful training sure. uh, that I could have attended, and I wish that I had this before. They should become a part of ed prep programs. Um, so... I'm sorry, I got a little sidetracked from your question. No, 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 that's totally fine. I, I, I think generally what you're, what you're getting at is spot on, that you want to catch educators as soon in the process as you can with this kind of ethical training. Um, the concept of an ethics team, at least what I took away from that, was it's almost like a rapid response team you know, within a district that is going to look at potential situations uh, figure out where there might be problems for educators and develop policies that will assist people in doing a more ethical job. Exactly right. And, and honestly, I feel that there's more of a, a critical need for, for that now because mm. of all of the teachers, uh, educators, we'll call them, that have come into the workforce under the emergency regulations that did not go through the traditional, traditional path to become educators and get oh, right. that that right. in-depth ed prep training that dealt, deals with some of the ethical issues that they may find themselves faced with uh, early on in their careers. Most of the most of the ethical violations are, you know, they occur early on. Mm -hmm. 
in, in right. an individual's career. They just just not clearly uh, defined goals that I am the teacher, you are the student, and you know, trying to be the cool teacher, trying to be the fun teacher. Right. Uh, in the, in my experience, and this is very anecdotal, and you know, I think you and I have talked about this. There's there's an inverse bell curve almost that there's more incidents of uh, educator misconduct, particularly around technology in those early years when they're just coming out of being a student themselves, they're used to communicating a certain way. And so they tend to communicate with their students or they're more at risk of doing that, you know, when there's a very small age gap and then people settle down, it seems like in their late 20s and 30s. And then you start to see an upswing and sadly, particularly among men, when they're hitting their 40s and 50s <laughs> into and technology i think because it levels the playing field between teachers and students just makes it far too easy for people to interact in ways that they absolutely shouldn't i mean that's been one of the core messages of our podcast like people need to think about that yeah and you know you're absolutely right and what you see it a lot is uh in programs that have extracurricular activities, whether it be drama, theater, Soccer. sports, yeah, yeah, you know, clubs, that's when you're operating outside of the school network a little bit. It tends to lines get tend to get a little blurry. <laughs> well, and on top of that, that's it, it's those situations, honestly, where things are particularly fraught because when you're dealing with after-school activities, you're dealing with um, transportation, you're dealing with schedules, you know, getting kids home. So there is more of an impetus, I think, for educators to share their cell phones with kids. And because of course, with smartphones, there's all of these apps and text messaging and everything else, it becomes a very slippery slope. And, you know, we, we keep hammering this message every single year, and it's just hard for it to sink in sometimes. You know, and, and but that is so true. And that's why we continue to hammer at it, because you just got to keep keep beating that drum until people get it. Uh, and but it, it's going to remain a slippery slope. Uh, some people are going to definitely fall down that slippery slope and find themselves in in an office like mine. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Nobody wants to see Q. On that no, I'm, I'm not a fun guy to deal with when it comes to, you know, taking advantage of exploiting a student in any capacity. Certainly not. Uh, well, um, actually, if I can jump in here, Q, because that, that brings up one of, I think, the most interesting sessions that you guys chose for this particular PPI. And that was the young woman who was a victim of a sexual assault by an educator and she showed up with her father and i think her attorney if i recall that, correctly that's correct and honestly that was absolutely gripping stuff can you tell us a little bit about how that came about yeah and i'm so, just looking for her name actually because she she's very brave about all of this yeah i wish i could remember her name as well i do remember the session um, that was uh, lessons from a survivor. Uh, can look yes. at the app. We can both look at the app and get her name. Uh, <laughs> uh, give me a, two seconds and I'll do so. I think I have it open right here. Okay. Uh, oh, I've got it. Uh, well, actually, I have. Um, it was moderated by Garnet Burns, but I don't have the actual 
panelists. You will. Let's see. Bio is Garnett Burns. Oh, they only put Garnett's name in here. That's interesting. Oh, speakers. Oh, no. Uh, the, the survivor's name was Tiffany Franco, F-R-A-N-C-O. Yes. Uh, her father was Richard Franco. Garnett Burns was the presenter. David uh, Spellich, as Arizona State Board of Education, chief investigator. Uh, that's was, right. Uh, that's right. He, he talked about investigating this particular case. And um, what was interesting about this was the cross-state line stuff that popped up, if I recall correctly. No, or was it? No, I mean, I am conflating two because you're, you're one thinking of the about other the Arizona case. Right. One of the other sessions was really fascinating about tracking an educator who had moved to an entirely different state to try to keep teaching. But the Franco sense. thing, let's go back to that for a sec, because okay. it's a it's a brave thing for a young woman. I mean, she's in her early 20s now to stand or to sit in front of a group of investigators and and talk about this very difficult issue. Yeah, I, I want to applaud her for her courageousness. And, and um, you know, I was familiar with her story. I've read it and seen it before. Um, and, and she just impressed us so much. We thought it would uh, be a good idea to bring bring her back. Because, uh, again, we, we, you know, we have a, we're in a different region with a new set of uh, attendees. Uh, the West region, we, we hadn't been out to the Boise area and the Western part of the country in, I think, nine, nine or 10 years. Yeah, uh, I was at, that may have been, I think, my second one that I went to. Okay, and adding her father uh, to the mix raised it a level, right, to have it, that impact. Uh, yeah. And to, you know, if anybody happens to hear it, see it and understand her story, that sometimes uh, victims are reluctant to come forward because they feel that it's going to rip the family apart or uh, cast them in some, uh, you know, cast them disparage the family in some way. But this is a demonstration that, you know, uh, the family will support you, that you, it's the adult, that's the uh, perpetrator, not the student. The adult is the manipulator, not the mm -hmm. child, right? So, you know, most parents will come to understand that going through the process. There may be some anger and resentment initially, but they'll rally behind their child and support them. And the, the victim should be, uh, feel supported. So having her father on stage talking about uh, that particular piece of it, helping her through all the things that she's gone through since um, revealing what, what happened um, was really powerful message, I thought, um, because, you know, the father was playing the role of what I have seen in, in, in my background as a vi uh, victim advocacy, right? right. He was, yeah. And by supporting her the way that he does and touring with her gives her strength um, to restore her self-confidence and value and wealth of who she is. Um, and I thought it was really interesting, uh, you know, the investigator made numerous attempts to try to have this girl uh, tell what was going on, to reveal what was happening, and she was reluctant, and she wouldn't return the calls, wouldn't respond to emails uh, or messages, and finally he was able to get a message, simple, very simple message through to her, Google grooming. Yeah. 
That was, yeah. I'm glad you mentioned that because that was amazing, that moment. And, you know, and the investigators clearly very moved by this whole thing. The story was compelling to him. He wanted to make progress. Mm-hmm. And she, because of her reluctance to engage with the process because of honestly her fear of hurting the person who had hurt her and that's part of the grooming thing Uh, yeah it was just a brilliant insightful thing to say to this young woman because as as i assume you were about to say once she read that definition she called the guy back that was exactly yeah that was exactly what i was going to say and you know I, i i stored that in my archives because that is something because it is a challenge sometimes when we know something has happened, um, but we need the person to be ready to take the step forward. And I'm going to, you know, apply that strategy going forward. I thought that was very powerful and telling and, and that led her to making her decision to come forward. And, and it was just a simple thing. Look this up. Yeah. I, I, as you may recall, I think you actually handed me the microphone when I was doing this, but I, I had a chance to pose what I realized and honestly meant it to be a fairly difficult question to the dad about the supervision of the child's phone, you know, his daughter's phone, because clearly there was a lot of communication between the educator and his daughter that might perhaps have been caught earlier if the if the parents had been a bit more engaged in terms of looking at her device and you know he did not shy away from that i mean he agreed he he made it very clear that he wished he had looked at her phone more often but you know the problem you run into and and parents have said this repeatedly is that as they're getting into their late teens they, of course, want more privacy. And exactly. that's a tough balance to strike. And uh, I also think parents on the kids have been born and growing. These students, these, these students have been dealing with technology their whole life. So sometimes the parents are at the other end of it. You know, they were introduced to it, but it's not second nature to them. So they don't understand and have the savviness to be able to do. But as more parents have grown up with the technology themselves, they're better at understanding and preparing and inquiring and searching. Um, I've seen uh, recently, and I don't have any statistics to support it in this conversation, but parents have discovered things in their students' phones, uh, mm-hmm. uh, tablets, and things like that. And they're bringing them forward and yes. demanding yes. action. And in the, the action and demanding <clears throat> is not just from the school districts. It's from the local law enforcement <laughs> sure, as well. So yes. whether the local law enforcement, if they're able, and they have better forensics equipment, um, and if it's a close, uh, close in age in terms of whether it's per- this started with the grooming at 15, 14, 13, and, and consummated above the age of consent, they want to do forensics on that phone to look at it and get at it and yep. find things. And if they're, 
through that discovery, if they're unable to make the criminal case, they are still making referrals to offices like mine so that we can be, get involved uh, with disciplining the educator. Yeah. Well, um, and I, I would certainly urge anyone listening to this that if you don't want to get an invitation to a conference like PPI, you know, to talk about what has happened in your family, that that having conversations in the house about communication and being engaged in your child's use of the device is critically important. It really Warnings is. Warnings are serious and, and they should perish definitely. And again, you do a great job of educating everyone. Uh, but well, for a reason, <laughs> for a reason, and sad, right? right? And sadly, for a reason. I mean, I, I, I am as I was delighted to share with you a new grandfather, um, and one of the things that made me most happy, and I think it gets to your point about these younger parents now, is that my uh, son and his wife are keeping their child entirely off of social media, so no Facebook photos, no. Uh, you know, no Instagram photos, nothing at all, which is fantastic. We have a family chat group on the iPhone and that is it. And anybody who <laughs> violates that knows they will be booted and get no more grandchild photos, <laughs> it, it, <laughs> which is a serious threat. After your presentation, I know of at least three people that went and shut down their uh, social media accounts for that very reason, for, yeah. from oversharing about their children. No, it's, it's, it's such a big deal. And it's worth pointing out that these kids are going to continue to get more and more uh, social media savvy. I realized today when I was getting ready for the Alaska conference that um, Facebook is old enough to vote now. <laughs> <It actually>. <laughs> <laughs> so the the night anybody who is 18 years or younger does not know a world without facebook so and that they're, means they're, actually, they're not even on facebook they're, they're, well, what, they're not people, on facebook at all right but of course the ecosystem like right and me so the ecosystem has exploded since then and we've talked a lot about that but this is the environment that kids are growing up in. And hopefully we're going to make them and they'll make us more intelligent about how it gets used. Because, you know, I think a lot of the things that you deal with in your office are the result of this transition period, if you will, where the oldsters, and I, I can say that, um, are grappling with these new technologies. And it is a slippery slope for them. They get They get sucked in in ways that they might not anticipate. And I'm hoping the kids will just be smarter about it all. Yeah, I am hopeful as well. Uh, you know, like when you started talking, and I don't want to spend the whole time necessarily talking about your presentation, but your introduction into how the metaverse operates uh, and, 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 and stuff like that, and where you're able to get into certain portals uh, without any checks and balances, was, yeah. It was eye-opening. It was an awakening because, um, you know, you're in these VR uh, goggles and things like that, and, yeah. and you yeah. don't know where you, uh, what kids are going, what they're being exposed to. So the, I see potentially some some uh, nefarious activity taking place there that we're going to have to investigate at some point, and I don't know how we would yeah. approach that right now. But uh, Well, 
No, and, and and I think going forward, and obviously you try to refresh things and keep from beating the drum all the time, but you know maybe in a couple of years we're going to want to do a presentation for this group of investigators that really looks at the evidentiary piece because I think one of the things that's fascinating is that there's no really good archive mechanism for virtual reality right now. And that's, that's just going to be a huge, huge challenge. As a matter of fact, uh, Q, I'm heading up to Vermont to work on a computer forensics case next week, which fortunately is just old school stuff, right? you know, hard drive, things like that. So nothing too major. Let me ask you this as we start to wind down here. Um, Boise, great location, wonderful job out there. So I, I think you guys deserve kudos for that. Uh, where is PPI next year? PPI next year will be in Providence, Rhode Island, the twenty oh, sixth uh, Professional Practice Institute. Where... Well, that's that's fantastic. I'll get to hang out with my family when I come up for that one. And of course, it's only a train ride for me instead of you know cross country flight. You won't have to go through three time zones like I did. <laughs> Coming to my time zone, well, of course, yours as well. It's just a basically a shuttle, you know, a mm-hmm. shuttle bus for you. So. Um, what kinds of things I know you, you know, there's a fairly quick turnaround in terms of your planning process. Are you chairing again next year in terms of? Yes, that? I am. Okay. And so uh, any kind of preliminary thoughts on, on the kinds of things you'll be looking at? So some preliminary ideas. I mean, we still haven't uh, received the uh, evaluations from the conference. We take a lot uh, from that. We'll oh, go right, back right. in review the roller likes uh, because we use those to really get people talking and engaged. You know, you have the prosecutors in one room, investigators in another room, and ed prep folks in another room. So we go back and review those to see what really stimulated conversation amongst those topics discussed in those sessions and try to develop uh, presentations from there. We're always those, interested. If I can jump in, those I think are one of the best parts of the PPI conference, the idea that you get people from around the country with the same job function in a single room, you know, talking about stuff, people, it's like watching a ping pong match, you know, people bouncing ideas off of each other and we do it this way. Why do you do it that way? Maybe we should do it that way. It's really amazing. I agree. I agree. So I really like those. Um, (coughs) Always a, a role for technology. Uh, development yes. to keep, keep that going um, because we're faced with it. Um, certainly an area of interest to me, and I've started talking to uh, the development coordinator, is I am, you know, state standardized testing is not going in a way. Um, no. And there's still always going to be cases that are generated out of that. In recent years, it has moved away from paper best paper-based testing, PBT to computer-based testing, CBT. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's been challenging to be able to develop those cases, you know, from uh, data. You, know, you can see higher percentage of answers. Than, uh, answers are changing so much that it puts the students five, six, seven deviations away from the state norm. So this is like the Atlanta case then, right? From a few right. years ago. But well, that was a uh, statewide, uh, uh, countywide. We're talking about 
grades or uh, schools, okay. Uh, okay. not entire districts. Um, yeah. Just trying to figure out, because this is a relatively new area, right? Computer-based testing. Sure. Um, approaches. What are others experiencing across the country in trying to investigate and uh, determine how the cheating was done? Uh, we'll call it manipulation was done, and, <laughs> and who did it? Right, uh, right. So, so right, and this gets this gets you into data analysis. It gets you into forensics. I mean, this there's a lot of pieces to it. Right, but these are high stakes uh, tests, so. We, we have to figure out, and I'm, I'm sure that it's not unique to Massachusetts at this point. Um, also, the restorative discipline, uh, approach mm. to discipline, it's yeah. got a lot, it has a lot of traction, so we want to continue to develop that. Um, there's a, 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 a particular gentleman who that we used that approach with many years ago, uh, and he continues to write us to show us how successful he has been. Um, since being given a second chance and how important it was to be given that second chance and what it meant sure. to him. Uh, and now he's a published author and writer and does all of these wonderful things. And he shares that with us um, and thanks for us. And so I think, he, it, you know, we had a the victim impact us at the uh, Boise by coming in to talk about lessons of a survivor. So I'm thinking let's use that same model for somebody mm. who has been the beneficiary of restorative approach to discipline um, to see. And we have lots of testimony, written testimonial uh, people that have come in. I think we're going to solicit some of that from others, but I think he would be a very good impact speaker. Um, and then again, we just you know, have to see what's trending and, and take away from what we uh, see in the evaluations. That sounds terrific. Let me ask you one last question and then we'll wrap it up because we have easily filled up our time and could have gone in a bunch of different directions. But if somebody is in a school district or they're in an organization that might like to learn more about PPI or get involved, is that possible for districts to do? What should they do? That is a really interesting question. And, you know, hmm, that's a really- I guess I'm, the very specific question I would have for you, Q, and I, I should have looked into this and I apologize, I'm putting you on the spot, but let's say somebody wanted to look at or listen to the uh, presentations because there is an archive on the NASDAQ uh, website. Do you have to be a member or are those public facing? So- I think they're public facing in some respects where uh, LEAs now have memberships that allow them access to certain information. Certainly, okay. uh, I, I think so because, the, you know, the model uh, code of ethics uh, yes. for investigators. That's publicly uh, available. Yep. That's publicly available. The model code of conduct, conduct is publicly available. So I think there is a, a way uh, for... Uh, the public to gain access to some of the presentations from PPI. Excellent. Well, what I'll do is I will send people to nasdtech.net. So N-A-S-D-T-E-C.net. There's a bunch of information there. Um, I certainly will have this nailed down for the next time I bring it up and make sure. But NASDAQ, I, I firmly believe, has been a tremendous asset to school districts and to schools across the country. So I hope people will check it out. I hope they do as well. Excellent. Well, Q, thank you very much for giving us some time today and talking about PPI. It was a great conference, and I look forward to next year in Providence. 
Thank you, Fred. It was a pleasure being here. Jeffro, sorry I missed you. Um, I'm looking forward to serving as the chair for the uh, 26th annual PPI, uh, improving upon uh, this one and from lessons learned. And uh, I, I will say that it will be less uh, focused on sexual misconduct and more on uh, things that don't deal with that so much uh, so that we can <laughs> fi find some new fresh material to present to our target audiences. I will certainly work on my piece of that as well. That's great, Kia. Alrighty, folks, that wraps up this episode of the Cybertraps podcast. In the coming weeks, we'll continue our coverage of emerging trends in a variety of areas, including digital misconduct, cyber safety, cybersecurity, privacy, and the challenges of high-tech parenting. Along the way, we'll talk to our growing collection of international experts who are helping us to understand the risks and the rewards of digital technology. As Jethro says every week, you can find the Cybertraps podcast on all your favorite podcast apps. We hope that you'll share the show with your friends and colleagues and reach out to us if you have questions or topic suggestions. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter while it still exists, I'm or Jethro is at Jethro Jones and I am at Cybertraps. If you're still listening, you must have enjoyed the podcast. Please leave us a five-star rating and review in your podcast service. We appreciate having you in our audience and look forward to having you join us for our next episode. The end. Excellent, Great job. Great Thank job, you Fred. so much. Pleasure. It's, it's always such a pleasure to talk with you. And now I'm just realizing, oh, my God, I've got to go set up a Mastodon account for cyber traps. <laughs> uh, good luck to you, my man. We'll be back in touch soon. Yes, sir. You be well. And thanks All again. Right. Too. Safe travels. I know you're going to Vermont. And where else are you going? Well, I'm going to Vermont next week. And then my wife and I are celebrating our 20th anniversary in Montreal the week after that. And then I go to Boston to move my dad into the next level of care, which is kind of hard. And then we're in New York for three weeks and then we go visit in-laws. So yeah, it's busy. Man, you have a cycle lined up. <laughs> well, I'm sorry about your dad moving into that phase, but you, you know, you've been there for him and, and, and that's all the son a, a parent can hope for, right? Is well, a, and, and just to be absolutely clear and, and ethically, uh, ethically transparent my siblings who live in southeastern mass the three of them have been a godsend to my dad you know oh, i great. get up i get up when i can but you know he is so blessed to have the three of them kind of surrounding him that's um, really nice they're decent decent people yeah i'll just say this uh, the reason i'm so easy and quick to speak on that um because i'm from virginia i have mm. 10 siblings and <laughs> Wow. Uh, nine of eight of which are both brothers and two sisters and I did not feel that they did enough for my parents some my sisters a couple of people in the family really stepped up mm -hmm. I did everything I could financially more than anything from afar but um, I just when I hear like what you just described I applaud it and I always speak to people I'm like you're getting wings because uh, feathers <laughs> for your wings because yeah it, it it still bothers me to this day that I really couldn't be there to be there for them you know it, it every family has its its own crosses to bear and you know I think that I take some pride in my siblings and I having figured out a way to work together 
you know, there are always these inflection points like moving dad out of his house or into care facilities that I'm able to really block out and, and go up for that. But it's more the day-to-day -day stuff of kind of dropping in or doing medical appointments that, you know, <laughs> my siblings will have not just wings, they will have golden wings. <laughs> there you go. That's what I applauded. And that's how I'm raising my kids. I mean, hopefully yeah. I, I mean, hopefully I live long enough to need that kind of care from them, but I don't, yeah. I put so much value in stock yeah. in that. Um, so I applaud people who are actually executing that. So you and your family get a golden star yeah. from me. <laughs> well, back at you, Q. <laughs> Be well and have a great weekend. Huh? You too, my man. I'll talk to you. Bye-bye. Yes, good. Bye-bye. There are lots of solutions out there for giving students what they need when they need it. But when do they actually do all of those things. You need flexible time. When added into your master schedule, flex time enables students to get extra help or intervention, meet with teachers, make up work, get physical exercise, and try new enrichment offerings. If you're thinking of giving it a try, check out MyFlex Learning, which unlocks the benefits of flexible time without all the headaches you get with it usually. Its intuitive design and SIS integration makes implementation and training a breeze. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com slash BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com slash BE. Do you want to save time on prep work, increase student achievement for all of your students, reliably meet tier one standards? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to ixl.com slash B to learn how IXL's research proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve these goals. That's ixl.com slash B-E.